So I, I got an interesting letter this week, uh, anonymously in the mail. Don't worry, I know it wasn't any of you folks. And I just found it mildly humorous. Um, there was somebody sent a two-page letter, and apparently they sent it to a whole bunch of churches. And from the postmark, it seems that they were in Michigan somewhere near Detroit. Um, and the, the, the juxtaposition of the letter was that we need to get away from these man-made translations that call themselves the Bible, and we need to get back to the original Bible, the King James. If you don't get that, see me afterwards, because the King James ain't the original Bible, folks. If you were given a lottery ticket, like say somebody gave you a birthday card, and inside that birthday card, they had bought you a lottery ticket, okay? They said, ah, just give this to them and call that their birthday present. And you looked at that lottery ticket, and that night was the drawing, and lo and behold, you won the jackpot. Now, to make the math simple, I kept it at the minimum, which is like $20 million, the, the minimum jackpot for like the whatever lottery it was. Uh, $20 million. Chances are, if you saw that, you would be pretty happy. You'd be like, wow, that's a heck of a birthday gift somebody gave me. But you would probably not be as happy as you think that you would be. For starters, the way they set it up is it's kind of a scam. Um, the $20 million that they say you won, you only get that if you take 20 years to get paid for it. If you, I thought it was 20. Um, if you take the lump sum payout, the government just takes half right off the top. Half. They take half off the top. Okay? So, you only get 50% when you go to get your payout. Then, then, the government, once more, in this time in the form of the IRS, they swoop in and they take 24% right off the top for taxes. And that's just for starters. And after that, the state of Indiana swoops in and takes 3.23% before you ever get a dime. You end up getting roughly, and this is depending on how taxes go, 36.38% of what they said your prize was. 36.38% because the government gets the rest. Keep in mind that for every dollar that gets paid into the lottery, only 65% of that get put, gets put towards winnings. About 29% of the proceeds that come in before they even announce what the prize is goes to guess who? Guess. The government. That's before they even say what the jackpot is. Basically, for every dollar that you, the winner, gets, the government gets more than $3. 
I think we can all see who the actual winner of the lottery is each and every time. Imagine, however, if all you got to keep, you're the so-called winner of a so-called lottery, and all you get to keep is 1% of 1%. Now, I had to use a calculator, all right? I admit it. But that means that you would get a nice, healthy $2,000 out of that so-called $20 million lottery. Now, hey, I would not mind if somebody just walked up to me and said, hey, here's $2,000. That wouldn't break my heart at all. But if you were looking at an original prize of $20 million, It would sure seem pretty paltry, wouldn't it? And yet, it would seem that some people who claimed to follow Christ were more than happy to not only accept something far less than 1% of 1% of the actual prize, but they were preaching it to others as well. And what is strange is that some of the people they were preaching it to We're accepting this nonsense. They were just saying, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Turn with me to see what I'm talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to start with 1 through 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The letters to the church in Corinth are wonderful things for us to have. They just really are. I mean, all of the Bible is, but it's sad to say, but the fact that the people in Corinth did so much wrong and were getting so many things wrong is a tremendous gift to you and I. Yes, I wish that our forerunners in Christ, I wish they'd had a little bit more on the ball. But if they had been then what they should have been, we would not have so many answers to the problems in our Christian walk, which we do. I mean, really, the fact that the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, had to correct them so incredibly much over so many things gives you and I a lot of guidance to live our lives. It's like the little brother who sees his older brother getting in trouble a lot and learns a few things of what not to be doing because it doesn't work out well for his big sibling. Kind of stinks to have been that older brother getting things wrong a lot and getting in trouble a lot, but the little brother can at least Learn the easy way. 
by observing others' mistakes. I did not write that because I'm the littlest brother. No, I made plenty of mistakes. One of the apparently big things with the Corinthian, that the Corinthian church was getting wrong was the idea of the resurrection. Imagine that. Something so basic, and they were getting it wrong. Not just of Christ, but of people as well. To be fair, there were a lot of people back then who weren't getting this right. The Greeks considered the idea of a physical life after death to be preposterous. They had their incorrect concept of the underworld, of disembodied spirits, but the idea of a bodily resurrection was something that they merely laughed at. That was ludicrous in their minds. Within the Jewish tradition also, there were a lot of people who were under the influence of the teachings of the Sadducees, who taught bluntly that there was no resurrection, a concept that we're going to go into in more depth in three weeks. But suffice to say that the resurrection was an idea that had a lot of detractors. Unfortunately, a good number of Christians were falling into their sphere of influence, and they were in need of some correction. In this passage, Paul is telling them that he's going to go over it again. The gospel of Christ, which they received and accepted. Let's make that clear, all right? They were told about the gospel of Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection. They were told this. They didn't almost hear about it. They didn't get pretty close to accepting it. They heard it. They received it. They accepted it. And it is through this gospel that they were now able to stand. It is through the gospel that they are being saved, is what it says. By having this faith in Jesus. But then it says something very, very odd and very, very important. It says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. These words, right there in Scripture, let me tell you something. Those words vex a Calvinist to no end. They simply cannot abide them saying what they say, so they have to change them. But we'll get back to that in a little bit. This says that one terribly Terrible, but terribly important word. It says, if. In Greek, it's I, E-I. That word suppresses the adiposis, and I'm probably pronouncing that word wrong. The adiposis is the main concept of a sentence. In this case, the term, you are being saved, that is the main concept of the sentence. And it is suppressed by the term, if, like an on-off switch. When the switch is on, it makes the concept true. 
If the switch is off, it negates the main concept. If this. We might not know the lexicon of the verbiage by heart, but we all know what it means. We were all taught this in childhood. Hopefully all of us were. And it was so convenient that my granddaughter said what she said about cleaning the house because in my sermon, it literally says, quote, you learn this in childhood, if you clean up your room, you will get an ice cream. Now, you don't have to have an English degree to understand what that means and the reverse. If you do clean your room, you get what? That automatically also includes the negative. If you don't clean your room, you you don't get any ice cream. Unless your parents are spoiling you. It's an automatic. This doesn't take genius level. If you do this, then this happens. Also means if you don't, the reverse happens. But the Calvinists can't accept this. So they mutilate the clear meaning of the text to become the equivalent of saying, and this, I'm not kidding you, this comes straight out of a book I read this week. They would have it say, since you didn't clean your room, it's clear that you were never really going to get ice cream in the first place. That's their understanding. It's very important that we're careful about from whom we accept teaching on the Bible. That's what Paul is talking to them about. When you are having teaching to you about Scripture, it is very important that you pay attention to who it is that's teaching and what it is that they're teaching. You've got to be really, really careful. One of the sources I read through while prepping for this sermon... I'm going to name it. It was my NIV study Bible, the 1984 version. I looked at what the notes had to say on this passage. In the notes about verse 2, it says in grand old Calvinistic style, here's what the man says, quote, If you are not persevering in the Christian faith, It is an evidence that you did not have saving faith in the first place. That's what he gets out of this passage that says, if you hold fast to what you did believe. Ah, yes, when the Bible doesn't fit your your doctrine, just do violence to the text of the Bible. But a further proof that the man who wrote these notes is not to be trusted for good Bible teaching is what he says about verse 3. Where Paul says in verse 3, what I received, I passed on to you. This is what this dyed-in-the-wool Calvinist would teach us. He says, quote, Here, Paul links himself with early Christian tradition. He was not its originator, nor did he receive it directly from the Lord. 
His source was other Christians. That's what a PhD in theology got into the NIV study Bible. There's just one little problem with that. Paul himself had considerable things to say on the very topic. I make no claim to be a world-class theologian of any sort. But I have actually, you know, read the Bible a couple of times. So I'm wondering how not only did this guy spout this nonsense that Paul got the gospel from other people, not from the Lord, but that it made it past the editor. Where was the editor going, hey, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Because Paul says very clearly where he got the gospel. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul and the guy who wrote the notes for 1 Corinthians in the NIV study Bible apparently don't know what the other one wrote. And I'm I'm telling you, one of them's wrong. And it's not Paul. It would seem pretty decisive that the author of those notes on 1 Corinthians doesn't have a clue about what he's teaching. So be very very careful to hold fast to the Word and not what someone says about the Word which goes directly against the Word. doesn't matter how educated or famous they are. This was the very problem that Paul was having with the people in Corinth. They knew the Gospel. They'd been taught it by Paul. He received it from Jesus. It was this gospel and their faith in it that it says was bringing them salvation. But only if they would hold fast to it. And yet their firm grip on the gospel was slipping. They were buying into things taught by men which contradicted what was taught by Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So what was it that they were believing? Well, Paul goes on in this passage to emphasize that what he taught them was that Jesus died for their sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. They were having a hard time with this. That's to be anticipated in their time. In Romans, in 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Peter, Christ crucified and inferring his resurrection is referred to as a stumbling block to many, many people. It's something people have a hard time accepting and getting past. They just can't really grasp it. Or if they do, it's something they still hold So they're talked out of their belief that they 
hell. And so when people who claim to know more than Paul come along and they say, it didn't happen, this resurrection. And they're like, oh, so I don't, I don't have to believe that in order to be saved? They probably felt relieved at the, the conflict that was in their mind, believing on one side and having this issue on the other. They can accept Christ as dying for sins, that God would redeem them, and then not have to go down the messy road of what the whole people coming back from the dead means, which seems to them to be nonsense, and that no educated person would admit they believed it. Going down to verses 12 through 19, Paul continues and he says, explains why this is so important. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. It may seem like a concept from ancient times, and it doesn't apply to us today, but that's not fully the case. This rejection of the bodily resurrection while no recognized Christian denomination teaches against the resurrection of Jesus, a lot of people who call themselves theologians do. From the website theconversation.com in an article entitled How Baptists Hold Differing Views on the Resurrection of Christ and Why It Matters. I'm going to quote from that. It says, Was Jesus body body literally raised from the dead? And what relevance does the resurrection have for those struggling for justice? These questions emerged in the wake of theological modernism, also known as liberal theology. Theological modernism led liberal Christian theologians to attempt to create an alternative path between the rigid rigid orthodoxies of Christian churches and the rationalism of atheists and others. This meant that liberal Christians were willing to revise or jettison cherished Christian beliefs such as the bodily resurrection of Jesus if such beliefs could not be explained against the bar of human reason. You may have never heard a preacher espouse the idea that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. 
bodily. But they are out there. And they write so-called Christian books to that effect. And they are influencing thousands of other preachers and theologians and people in churches who just want to read something that they think is a deep theological book. There are also thousands, according to several surveys, who preach that Jesus rose, but they don't believe it. Which brings us back to the lottery. And that 1% of 1%. Would you be the slightest bit happy if that was all you got when they told you, hey, you won $20 million, here's a check for 2000 only getting 1% of 1% of the winnings of the lottery would seem like a blessing in comparison to a Christianity in which Jesus Christ didn't rise because that means that we also won't rise. And as Paul so rightly put it in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you read. Be careful who you find yourself being influenced by about the Word of God. There are wolves in sheep's clothing pretending to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ but are teaching blasphemy and heresy. Even if you are to live your best life here and now, let's say you are healthy, let's say you're wealthy, you're good-looking, in great shape, happy, you've got the perfect marriage to the perfect spouse, and all of the best friends, all that combined, what a pitiful excuse that would be as a replacement for the salvation which only comes through faith in Christ Jesus and Him crucified for our sins and raised from the dead as a first fruits and conquering of death so that you and I might also rise and spend eternity with God in heaven. But if you haven't accepted Christ, if you're sitting there week after week after week going, oh, well, that's some, that's some interesting information. That sounds kind of good. But you have not accepted Christ as your Savior. You're not even going to get the 1% of the 1%. Don't wait another day. Give your life to Christ. and Have Him remove those sins which burden you. Come today as the praise team leads us.